Philippians 3, 1 to 15. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if it is on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. They're people. They're people at <laughs> the sanctuary. This is amazing. What, what a great day uh, to come gather as a church as we reopen. Uh, hello to you online as well. Uh, thank you for joining us still. Uh, as, we during, uh, as we transition during this time. Uh, thank you for everyone be working behind the scenes that's been really putting in a lot of effort, all the tech, all the setup, uh, the welcome team that's really put all this together as Make a Field Welcome Back. Uh, this is really quite exciting uh, for me uh, as a pastor of this church and also to hear you sing uh, as we were worshiping, to hear the voices of God's people. Uh, just shouting out and crying, I, I could sense this. I've said this before uh, but I really sense it that when the church, we feel like uh, we were all in different parts. Well, we were all in different parts of the city uh, and singing and whatnot. But when we gather, there's this power as we hear one another that we encourage each other in this way. That there's a song that God is giving us uh, to proclaim. And I felt blessed by your singing. Uh, so I don't know what I'm trying to say. Just thank you uh, for, for singing and <laughs> encouraging me. Uh, your presence really does make, make a difference. Uh, and, and it has been a good 16, 17, I don't know, 18 months uh, or so uh, of this kind of transition, this time that we've been through. And even despite the transition, even though we were all separated, I just want to say that God has been in control, that he has this peace that he's given his church and this hope that the church is founded upon Christ as the foundation, as the rock, that the church is being held in Jesus' hands. And, and because of, of that, each one of our lives is also in that a process as well, that he's had all of us. With all the chaos and the pain and the suffering, everything that we've been through, God has been constant through it all. 
And today really is a thanksgiving to God that we can gather uh, in this way and for the rest of us online as well as we gather as, as the church. So it really is good to stand before you. Uh, and this is kind of a quick hello, but also not goodbye uh, <laughs> to say because next week, uh, August 1st to September 3rd, our family is going on a sabbatical. Uh, so I'm really thankful that I'm able to come in and say hi, uh, to give a message, and to uh, just share God's word with you this morning uh, before we have a one month of sabbatical. I can't believe it's been seven years of full-time ministry here at LLC, and if you count the three years of internship, it's technically 10. So I'm like, wow, it's really, God, God, God's been so good through it all, uh, and he's been so constant through it all. And I had another counseling session this week. My counselor just reminded me just of the faithfulness of God, of his patience. He's like, uh, she's like, wait a minute, so God called you this, and God said this to you then, and it took you about a year and a half, two years to respond to him. It's like, yeah, yeah, that, you know, I was in my own time. It's like, well, don't you imagine, like, can't you see the patience of God? Can't you see how good he has been all this time, working behind the scenes? And I just want to encourage you with that, that it's been the case for each and every single one of you as well in your life. Whether you realize it or not, God has been working, and he's been in your life since day one. But just me saying hi for next month or so. Uh, we'll have a lot of good uh, guest speakers as well as our own Pastor Howard. Uh, oh, I see him. He's there. Uh, even though, yeah, congratulations on <laughs> getting married. <laughs> Pastor Howard and Lavelle as well. Uh, so he'll be uh, covering a, a couple Sundays as well, and I'm excited uh, to hear that uh, as well. Uh, let's just pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for today, uh, which is all about you and your faithfulness and your goodness and God, as we dive into your word, may you build in us a heart and a confidence in you, in you and who you are and who you said uh, and, and how you are working in this world and how you're working in our lives. Father, we come into this Sunday with a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different emotions, a lot of different circumstances in our lives. But we come before you now uh, and praying that, God, you would be the one that speaks and you would be the one that encourages and speaks right to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a while since using this clicker. Uh, I'm calling the title of this sermon today, Confidence in Christ from the Philippians 3, 1 to 15. And in my research of the word and diving into the word this week, my mind kind of wandered off into this other realm of, 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 studying, uh, of studying metrology. I'm not sure you can go to the next slide. Maybe this isn't working. Is that me? That is me. Okay. Yeah. Metrology. You're like, what on earth is that? Uh, and what does that have to do with the sermon today. Metrology is a science of measurement and its applications. And you're like, why on earth would you be reading something like that? Well, only I would be interested. I didn't hear any cheers. They're, yeah, metrology, you know, the science of measurement. Uh, maybe it doesn't excite you the way that it did excite me, but it's the, the people, the men and women around the world that are set to improve uh, the design, maintenance, and improvement of measuring instruments. Uh, and also the, and the, usually applied in the natural sciences and in engineering. And I did more research into it that how measurements exactly started in Meso ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. The first standard measurement of length was the cubit, which we often read uh, in scripture. But in Egypt specifically, the royal cubit was the length of Pharaoh's arm from his elbow to the end of his middle finger. I'm not sure because that's the longest part. So uh, every time they had a new pharaoh, they had to get a new cast made of what a cubit is. And it's like, well, wait, are we using his right arm or his left arm? I'm not really sure. Ah, we've got to do it again. So they got to go and, and find, find out, and that's the royal cubit. And then when Rome came around, 
uh, the Romans had something called the one step, which is what defined as the pace. And mil passus, uh, which is passus uh, in Latin, means 1,000 paces. And that's where we get the English word mile from. So that was the rough way, 1,000 paces, 1,000 steps. But to, uh, to today, in our measurements, it's actually shorter. They were just estimating like, whose step, right? You know, like my step, like your step, it doesn't really matter, just 1,000 steps. Uh, that's, what, that's what a mile should be. Uh, so you can see how it's kind of inaccurate, and it didn't make any sense, and it was really hard to replicate. For example, the inch before, the inch was three barley seeds. And you're like, which ones? <laughs> any three? Like, you know, if I wanted to be greedy, I'm like, I'm going to choose the three largest barley seeds, right? And that's what the inch is going to be. I'm going to choose the three smallest ones, and that's what the inch is going to be. Well, that's until the French came to our rescue, uh, and the French in the 18th century, they, during the revolutionary France, they're like, this doesn't work, this doesn't make any sense, so we're going to need to invent a system. And they, their, their work started the metric system that we're using here today, and they, they inspired five people to go and to find out what would be the units of measure that everyone's going to use. So that's when they created, this is getting really geeky, they, this is when, in 1790, they found out what the meter is. The meter the meter is defined as one ten millionth of the distance between the equator to the North Pole. Because they found out that from the equator to the North Pole, and of course they had to go through Paris, because they're French, <laughs> right through Paris, is 10,000 kilometers, and a meter is one ten millionth of that distance. And from there on, they went on to create tenth, uh, the power of tens. And if you know in science, I'm not a scientist, into that and created the metric system, which was, in 1875, created the Treaty of the Meter, which countries, 17 countries from around the world signed and agreed that this is the measurement that we're about to use. Okay, you're like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> on and on and on about the meter stick. I wanted to bring a physical meter stick. I should have asked some of our teacher friends here. I'm sure they have it. I didn't want to spend $17 at Staples uh, to buy it, so you're going to have to look at that. But what's the pur purpose of why I'm sharing this? Well, in real life, in the natural sciences, in, in the world that we live in, we use many things to measure, and we have a way of keeping account of, of distance and what we have and the things of this world. But I want to ask you this question this morning. Maybe we can measure distance with a meter stick, but what do we use to measure the worth of a life? Maybe we have a, meter, a, a, meter, a, a measurement to measure a meter stick, but what do we use to measure a life? And as we go into the passage this morning, I want to put this big idea over us that we're having confidence in all the wrong things of this world and what we use to measure the worth and what it means to measure success and what it means to measure the, the, the worth of our lives. You see, you can have confidence in Christ or you can have confidence in yourself and the things of this world, but you can't have confidence in both. You can have confidence in Christ or you can have confidence in yourself and the things of this world, but you can't have confidence in yourselves, confidence in both. And we can get wrapped up in a lot of these things, the confidence in ourselves and the things of, of, of this world. And not only are they tangible things, we think about uh, uh, maybe things like cars and our houses and our, our money uh, and our reputation, fame, and the name that we've established for ourselves. Maybe not so much of those tangible things, but there's also the intangible things of this world that can rob us of our joy, that can rob us of our life, that can rob us of the joy that Jesus 
can give us because we replaced him with other things of our world. Uh, we replaced our foundation with, with anything else but Jesus. You see, things aren't bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't have things. Like, you know, you should feel guilty for driving here this morning or watching from your laptop and, you know, I should get rid of all this and you're like, I'm plugging everything out. I'm not saying things are bad. It's the abundance of these things that can get to us. It's the abundance of whatever confidences we have that can get to us and take us away from who this Jesus is. You see, there are some, there are some who have things that money can buy but have lost the things that money cannot. And when we have the things that we think money can buy, we have this confidence in ourselves, we, we, we forget what's really most important. And if this last 15, 16, 17, 18 months have taught me anything, it is that we can't have confidence in things. We can't have confidence in the flesh even. We can't have confidence in, in, in anything else in this world because there's so many things that are changing. So many scenarios, so many contexts. So much pain, so much suffering, so many unknowns. But as we come to the word this morning, we, we know that even though there's certain things you might argue that money can buy, like certain joys that you have and that we can experience and enjoy, ultimately money can't buy us eternal life, can't buy us this peace and this joy that can only be founded in Christ. And that's what the letter to the Philippians is, is all about is what it takes and what it means to have true joy according to who Christ is. That true joy comes from having a deep relationship with Christ. This true joy comes from this deep relationship. We can be, we can be confident in this Jesus that we follow. Firstly, confidence in our own abilities is a dangerous way to live. Confidence in our own abilities is a dangerous way way to live. I've shared a story before where my very first time swimming uh, was in Hong Kong. I lived there for a year, and my uncle swam a lot better than me, and my mom was like, hey, go tell your uncle. It's time to get out of the pool. The whole family's going back home now. And what my mom didn't know or didn't expect, she expected me to walk around the pool <laughs> and to go and tell my uncle when he finished his lap, but I actually just dove straight in. And then when I dove straight in, I realized I can't swim. Trust in my own ability. And my mom came to my rescue, dove right in. I, that's, that's my image. I don't actually remember. Uh, and then took me out of the pool. I was like, what were you thinking? I'm like, you told me to get my uncle. Like, that's, you know, I just followed your instructions. But confidence in our own abilities is a dangerous way to live. And that's a silly and maybe simple example of that. But more importantly, when we trust our own abilities, it gives us a false sense of security. A false sense of security that we're really in control. And Apostle Paul says this in chapter 3, verse, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. He's reminding here right in the very beginning, in chapter 3, our joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's in the Lord. That's where we get our joy from, where we get our peace and our hope from, not in anything else. But to expand on that a little bit more, Paul is saying to say the same things to the Philippian church as he has been before, that what he's going to repeat here is a safeguard. It's a, it's a safeguard, meaning to st uh, stabilize, to help them stand firm, to help them have this confidence uh, in their belief, to give them certainty over what they believe in. It goes on saying, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Like what on earth is Paul talking about here? 
uh, how do we make sense of this? Well, he's really going to what, uh, he's, he's using this verse to launch into what it means to be a Christian. Like what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to have this joy uh, in, in the Lord. He's saying, don't be like those, and he's quoting from Psalms here, there's a psalm on this, saying, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh who only depend on the things on, of the world, uh, on their own desires, or on their own uh, abilities. Watch out for that. Instead, instead, verse 3, uh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So don't follow those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh that only depend on uh, what's physically seen and on their own gifts and talents. Instead, those who are really circumcised, which in Old Testament rep represents those that are separated, all right? Those are, those are set apart for God. Those that are really set apart for God are those who serve God, those who boast in Christ Jesus, and those who put no confidence in the flesh. What does this mean? Worships God in the Spirit. It doesn't depend on their own good work. It doesn't depend on their own good work, but depends on God for everything. In their everyday, in their strength, uh, in their tasks, in their actions, they depend on God and who he says he is. Boasting Jesus Christ, instead of boasting what they have done, they're speaking about what Christ has done. So instead of saying, look at me, look what I can do, look what Jesus has done, look who he is, look how loving he is, look how awesome he is, and puts no confidence in the flesh, doesn't depend on their own strengths and their own gifts. There's a popular saying that the Lord helps those who what? Who helps themselves. This is not true. Not, not only is it not true, but it's also not biblical <laughs> for, 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 for a second. Yet people still depend on themselves and what they can do to please God. This kind of thinking seeps into our way of living as Christians, that we might know God is our help and God is our salvation, but we still lean into thinking, hey, we've got to do something about it. It's depending on my own, own task. It's dependent on my own strength. But if we keep that kind of thinking going, you're going to be tired you're going to be burnt out. You're not going to experience the joy that comes from the Lord. You're not going to experience the goodness of God because the only good work is the finished work of Jesus. The only good work is the finished work of Jesus on that cross, which made a way for you, which gave you freedom, which gave you this new life so that we don't need to run around seeking life because the life that you're seeking, that life has already come to you in Jesus. He's already given you this hope and this life that you're looking for. But Paul says, if you are to boast, I have all the reasons to boast. <laughs> if we are going to go into that route, I myself have reasons for such confidence in my own flesh. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul lived perfectly everything to the T and fulfilled every credential there is to be fulfilled. Paul had a high standing relationship in the nation of Israel. As he walked, people are like, I want to be like Paul. 
This is an example of what it means to live a holy and pure life. He came, he came from a pure Hebrew family. Came from a pure Hebrew family. Because what's all this about the tribe of Benjamin? I was reading this and I was fascinated by this this week. Paul wasn't just descended from Ishmael. If you know the Bible history, Abraham's other son, which was separated from the covenant line, or Esau, who's Isaac's other son, but he's from Benjamin. Benjamin, who, who along with Joseph, were Jacob's favorite sons. So I wasn't just from the tribe of Israel. I, I, I'm not just a Hebrew. I'm from the favorite family. The favorite family but from the tribe of, of Benjamin, from Jacob's favorite sons. They were born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul, from a human heritage standard, from a fleshly standard, from a worldly standard, came from a place where he could be proud. Look at my family line. Look at who I am. But he was also a Pharisee, where according to the Jews of the day, the Pharisee, it was the top. I hope we don't go back to how things were and trusting in ourselves and the things that God has spoken to you in the last 16, 17, 18, 19 months. That we will progress and grow from this place that God has been leading us through. Because Paul, even though he had all the morality, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. Oh, man. Paul had all the morality. He knew all the right answers. He did all the right things, but he did not have the righteousness that got him to heaven because he did not have Jesus. He did not have what was most important in his life. He was walking around with all these accolades, trusting in his own desires, but not having true life. Having everything in this world, but not truly living. And the longer you live, and the more I reflect about this in my own life, the harder it becomes to not put your life in your own hands. Why? Because the longer we live, the more education we get, the higher we climb in our positions, we start living like we're experts in life. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Some of you know I started going back to school a couple months ago, and the story was shared to me in one of the classes, and it's based on an article written in the New York Times uh, by Heidi Julevitz, and it's called What I Learned in Avalanche School. And what she learned was that people cause avalanches. And being a geo-geek, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Understanding the, the, the makings of an avalanche, that of all the uh, tragedies in the world, 90% of the avalanche fatalities and tragedies were caused by people. The decisions, ex and most importantly, what she learned was the, expert, uh, the decisions expert skiers make can also cause avalanches. No matter how much they know, no matter how uh, observant they are, that they are also likely to cause an avalanche. Because she realized when she took the avalanche course, she learned that she increased the likelihood that she would die in an avalanche. Because any of you here would normally just walk up a really steep slope, like, no, no, normally that screams danger. Don't do it. But the more we know, the more we think we know what we're doing, the higher we climb. And so the story sets out that there's a party of eight that set out to the southern slope of Mount uh, a microdot peak, which is in Alaska, and the eight of them uh, climbed on this mountain, and they, what was fascinating was they knew all the signs of an avalanche. 
that the slope was 35 degrees, and most avalanches happened between 30 and 45 degrees. So that should have been a warning for them. When the skiers went up and ascend, uh, into ascended, uh, ascend, uh, ascended the mountain, the skies were blue, the winds were calm, fresh powder. For those of you that ski and snowboard, you're like, yes, powder fever. <laughs> we got to keep going. We got to keep going. So even though they knew that this was signs for an avalanche, they kept going because of this powder fever. But they also knew a week before there was wind, and high winds and high snow formed a weak layer in the, in, the, in the snow that causes avalanches to happen. What's even more, they're halfway up the mountain. They drilled a hole to see what's underneath, and they found this weak layer. And they said, we're going to keep going. Some of these, uh, some people on this team, they spent 100 days in the backcountry that winter, they were all graduate, graduates of an avalanche school. They were familiar with the properties and behavior of the snowpack. They, re, they even refined their safety assessment and the predictions of when avalanches would happen. A few had triggered and survived avalanches. One had even witnessed an avalanche fatality. So they were experienced in this. They knew what was going on. But yet that day, four of them went down the mountain, one after another, and everything was fine. But the fifth one set off an avalanche. They carried him and the two other uh, members down the hill over a ledge, and they were buried. Thankfully, they survived, and they knew, uh, and they, because they knew what to do afterwards. But they, they could have been a lot worse. And the article was written, how can eight highly trained avalanche experts be caught in an avalanche? How is that possible? And quickly, I don't have much time to go through the whole article. You can pay 50 cents to read it uh, online if you want. <laughs> Uh, they, they, they were saying that when we become experts, we have this expert halo. Uh, experts know what they're doing, so no one questions them. You just keep going ahead. Or we, we start trusting in consistency. What worked in the past will work in the future. And consistency becomes a trap when our desire to be consistent overrules critical new information. That we just want to be consistent. We want to do the way that things have always been done. So even though there's no new information, there's new thoughts and thinking, we're going to ignore all that because for the sake of consistency. Familiarity, when we're more familiar, we become off guard. Commitment, every single step that they took towards the peak, it's one step for closer to the powder that they want to ski over. So they couldn't turn back. Every step they took forward, even though it was the wrong decision, it was harder to step back. Scarcity, powder, fever, beautiful weather, fresh snow, social facilitation. Everybody's doing it. So why are you going to be the one out of the eight? That's not going to. So what's the way forward? The way forward is through decision-making, through constant communication. And get this, and isn't this the ways of Jesus, and the ways of the church, what we're doing here, regular practice of emotional vulnerability. The way forward and, and making sure we don't go into all these pitfalls of repeating the same mistakes is regular practice of emotional vulnerability where we share and we open, openly share with one another and we express each other how we're doing, how is our walk doing, how we're doing spiritually. We, we become emotionally vulnerable with God who knows all things, but he's asking you, do you know how you're feeling? Have you been honest with yourself and what this life has been like? It's in, those, it's in this way when we become emotional, vulnerable with each other and with God, that we don't fall into these traps thinking we're experts in life and we become there for one another. 
Confidence in ourselves is a dangerous thing. But confidence in Christ is good, but what does that mean? It means knowing Christ. We think having confidence in Christ is really complicated and it's really hard, and it could be, but confidence in Christ, this means knowing Christ. This means knowing Jesus. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I love that, yes, to know, to know Christ means to know his power. To know Christ means to know and to participate in his sufferings. We think all Jesus wants is just to get us to do things in life. Right? We're little minions, a little ant colony, <laughs> and God is pulling the strings, wanting us to do things, to build up uh, his work and do his, do, do, do his bidding. But what Jesus really wants is for you to know him, to have this relationship with him, for you to, have to speak with him, for you to sit with him, and to hear him. And this knowing we're talking about is a deep knowing, not a superficial knowing. It's a knowing Jesus in a deep way. It's a personal experience. It's a personal experience where Jesus becomes our friend, not just an overlord. He's, he's our friend, but he is our Lord and our King because he is just, and he is good. He knows what he's talking about, and he's also our companion at all times. We have to have this personal experience of following God. That's how we, know, we start to know who he is. It's not only a personal experience, but it's a powerful experience. Powerful experience where you start finding hope in the hopeless situations. You find power in those situations, the hopeless situations. You find purpose in the purposelessness of life. In those moments, you know what I'm talking about, where you're wondering, what is going on? God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you see the pain that I'm going through? Do you know what's happening in my heart? We get to experience God in powerful ways where he gives this hope and this peace when there is no hope in this peace in the things of this world. But it could also be a painful experience. It's painful following Jesus because Jesus never promised for it to be easy. We're called to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross, so knowing Christ is part of following that. It's painful in denying our own desires, not trusting in ourselves and only trusting in God. But knowing Christ is also a practical experience, and you're probably sick of hearing me say this, but our doing flows from our being. Our doing flows from who we are. We don't just do things for the sake of doing things. We, we do and live out our life and our faith out of this relationship we have with God, out of this personal, this powerful, this painful, and this practical experience that God calls us into. And this is what Paul is explaining here. He's saying there's a real way of living Jesus. After I've experienced them, I will solve and 
And God encountered me in this personal, powerful, painful, and very practical way on the road to Damascus where he blinded me and I experienced this Jesus and I became a new man. I experienced him in this, in this new way where people could be after me. I could be experiencing pain in my life and suffering. Things aren't going the way that I thought, but I'm still experiencing this Christ. So that's why he says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all of this or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How did Christ take hold of Paul exactly? What did that look like? Maybe the ESV will help us a little bit. Not that I've already obtained in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or, already, or am already perfect because on this side of heaven would never be perfect. But I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has made Paul his own. And in the same way, he's going to say, I'm going to make Christ my own. I'm going to experience him in the way that Jesus has come and pursued me. I'm going to pursue Jesus in that same way. And Jesus has pursued and is pursuing each and every single one of us here today. For those of us watching online as well, he's pursuing you and knowing you and knowing what it is that you're going through. And one of the most important parts of any relationship whether it's as friends, as family, as kids, uh, whether you're dating or you're married or, or you're living life in your everyday, you encounter people no matter where it is that we are. And one of the most important parts of any relationship is knowing, to know the other person. I can say I know Jess, my wife. I know her perfectly. <laughs> That's that. Does that mean I never need to know her again? <laughs> Does that mean I never need to pursue her a little bit more? Does that mean I stop having conversations and asking questions and digging deeper and, and having this emotional vulnerability that we're called to? No. It's the same in Christ. We can say we know Jesus, yes, but it doesn't stop there. We keep going, we keep pursuing, keep pressing on is what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. We never arrive fully on this side of heaven, but it's but it's on this side of heaven when we experience this Jesus, we can also experience him fully. We experience his goodness. We experience his joy and this hope. We can have confidence that this Jesus is who he says he is. We can feel fully alive. And maybe this is for you, that you're experiencing this pain over this last year and a bit. This pain, this suffering, and this anxiety, and this worry. That you can feel fully alive despite that pain and that worry despite that anxiety and the worries that we experience. And you feel fully alive in the face of tragedy, knowing, knowing that this life isn't it, that Jesus has all things in his hands. And in Paul's experience here, as you ask many Christians around the world to testify to encountering Christ and having this relationship with him, we can attest that Christ is so much better than anything else that this world can give, anything else that this world can offer. And he ends this section, actually beginning in the next section, and NIV separates it with this, but I think it's the same thought. All of us then who are mature should take such view of things. 
that if you call yourself a Christian and you say you follow Christ, this word is especially for you at this moment. Take hold of this. Have such a view of life. Church, hold on to this thought. As some of you point, at some point you think differently, that too God will make it clear to you that even if you fall away, God still pursues. God still reaches. God still reminds, reminds you of who he is. As many of you know, the Olympics are in store. Of course, I'm going to throw it in <laughs> here. And I was watching the Olympic weightlifter where I'm still astounded in the 49 kg women's weightlifting, which is 108 pounds. They were lifting more than twice their body weight. 108 pounds here. She was trying to lift 220. This 18-year-old, first-time Olympian from Belgium, tried three times and didn't make it. And as I watched... You can see the devastation. You can see the pain. You can see at this moment the emotional release. And that's what I love watching Olympics is the emotional release of these athletes. I've been grinding at it all for this one moment. And you see her, this 18-year-old Belgian weightlifter, sit there in her agony and her pain. And though I could use this as an illustration of what it looks like to trust in your own strength and what it looks like to fail, I think this is actually a better illustration placed elsewhere, that this is what it looks like when something matters to you. This is the pain and the agony and emotional release of someone in a situation where it matters, that it's important, where they're all in, all out, and they place everything on the table. And I want to end by asking you this question. What sort of things matter most to you right now? What do you have this kind of emotional release over? Is it over the things of God, what he's calling you to, and how he's leading you to live, or is it in other things? I don't know. How do you spend your time? Who do you spend it with? Are they building up a life that leads you to know Jesus more intimately, or does it lead you elsewhere? And I'll end with this final question. What, would you willing, what are you willing to lose in order to gain this Christ? I think that's a question that we all need to wrestle with, because that, might, that actually might be the very thing that's keeping you from experiencing the full life that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this day that we can gather as a church physically and online to worship. God, you are so much greater than our pain, so much greater than our trial, so much greater than our suffering. Father, today, may you help build in us not a confidence in our own flesh, confidence in our own ability, but a confidence in you because we've learned over this past year and a bit the things of this world will fail. The things of this world will fade away. So may we not hold on to that but may we hold on to you, our salvation, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and may we trust in you. And may today be the beginning of new life. May we experience the freshness of the Spirit. May we experience your goodness. And may we come to know you, the power of the resurrection. And may we participate in you in ministry to live out this life.